Could you please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 11? Uh, most of this chapter, uh, like uh, the previous one, uh, is an interlude uh, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments, uh, with verses 14 and 15 of this chapter introducing uh, the final trumpet judgment. Uh, but the main theme of this chapter is the ministry of the two witnesses, uh, and it's this that we're going to consider tonight. So with that in mind, uh, let's pray, and I uh, will ask for God's help. Uh, Father, we do thank you. Uh, that you have uh, revealed to us uh, your future plans uh, in the Bible, uh, particularly in the book of Revelation. And uh, I do ask that you would help us uh, this night uh, to understand uh, both the meaning uh, and relevance of this portion of Scripture. Uh, please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I always uh, find stories about Christian martyrs uh, to be enthralling, uh, inspiring, and quite convicting. Uh, they're usually enthralling stories with twists and turns. It has you on the edge of your seat. Uh, they're also inspiring. They can often produce a newfound determination to live for Jesus no matter what. But they're also convicting. Okay, would I be that courageous? Okay, such stories invoke a broad range of emotional responses. They're certainly incredible stories. Okay, whether it be Jim Elliott and his friends martyred in Ecuador in 1956 while trying to reach the unreached with the gospel. Or John and Betty Stam, uh, missionaries to China who were beheaded by the communists in December 1934. William Tyndale is influential in translating the Bible into English he was strangled and burnt in 1536. You know, maybe you've heard the story of Thomas Cramner. He's burned at the stake in 1556. And what's famous about him is he burnt his right hand first because previously he had okay, signed a document recanting his beliefs. And he regretted that. Okay, he ended up going back on that, so he burnt his right hand first. Or perhaps Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostle John, martyred for refusing to burn incense to the Roman Emperor. And we could list many more. Church history is full of famous martyrs, and I would encourage you to learn about them. It's a wonderful thing for us to study. And there are countless more martyrs who have remained unknown to us, but are known by the Lord. And even in our time, okay, this very moment, okay, there are Christian martyrs every single day. Day. Okay, history is full of martyrs, and Revelation chapter 11 records some of the last martyrs in history. And their role in God's unfolding plan is crucial. And in this sermon, we're going to consider the ministry of these two faithful martyrs in the tribulation period as recorded in Revelation chapter 11. Okay, this chapter has three scenes which will form our outline. So we will consider the three scenes of the narrative which fit together to tell the story of the two faithful witnesses. So the first scene in the text is the temple measured, and uh, this is seen in verses 1 and 2. Now this chapter commences with a somewhat random request. John, measure the temple. 
Okay, if you remember in the previous chapter, the apostle has just received a recommissioning. And fresh off that, he receives this first task. Measure the temple. But before he does that, he's given a reed. Okay, what, what's the go with this reed? What's this talking about? Okay, well, John didn't have modern measuring equipment. Okay, he couldn't go down to the shed and find his trusty tape measure, nor could he set up his fancy lasers to determine the measurements. But rather, these reeds were like large rulers. And there were particular reeds grown in the Jordan Valley. They were lightweight, and they could actually grow up to six meters long. Hence, they made the perfect measuring stick. And we see something similar in Ezekiel's vision of the Millennial Temple. And John receives this instruction from the angel. Okay, this seems to be the same mighty angel from the previous chapter. And he instructs the apostle to do something that's somewhat unexpected. Go and measure the temple, the altar, and the worshippers. Okay, three specific things to measure. But he was not to measure the court. Okay, verse 2, that being the court of the Gentiles. This was not to be included in John's measuring so that's the instruction now from this instruction we learn that in the tribulation there will be a temple in jerusalem okay this will be constructed in the first half of the tribulation before the antichrist turns on israel and the fact that there will be a temple that would have been a great comfort for the jews when this was first written because remember the temple was destroyed in a.d 70 and this continues to be an encouragement for Jews today. There will be a temple in Israel again. But there's an obvious question. Why measure the temple? Okay, what, what's the point of this particular request? Well, obviously, this has nothing to do with physical dimensions. This is not about architecture or interior design. It's not like new carpet or curtains could be fitted. Okay, that there's nothing, and we know this because there's no dimensions listed in the text. So we must dig a little bit deeper. And there are a couple of clues to help us. The first is the contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. So in verse 2, John is told to not measure the court because it had been given to the Gentiles. And to remain unmeasured marked exclusion from God's favor. So those who were responsible for the treading down of the holy city, that's Jerusalem, for 42 months, three and a half years. Okay, this, I believe, is speaking of the second half of the tribulation. These particular folk are excluded from God's favor. And this is contrasted with the first group that is measured in verse 1. So that's the first clue. And the second clue is Old Testament scriptures. Okay, throughout the Old Testament, there are times when God marked out things for judgment. Okay, so that could be a possibility here, but I don't believe that fits the text all that well. So it's better to be understood as signifying ownership or defining the parameters of God's possessions. And there's such measuring in Zechariah 2 and Ezekiel 40. So this measuring of the temple, it signifies that, that a group of people, that they belong to God in some special way. 
And this group of people, God is going to protect them and he's going to preserve them. That there will be salvation for some. And they will experience the Lord's special protection, preservation and favor. Okay, there will be a Jewish remnant. God has not finished with Israel. Now, yes, it's true that even at this time, they will experience great tribulation. Okay, that they will be dominated by the Gentiles. We see this in verse 2. But the Lord will ensure that a remnant will remain. Okay, as Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9, two-thirds of Israel will be purged in judgment, and the remaining one-third will be saved, and they will enter into Messiah's earthly kingdom. Okay, so these worshippers in John's vision represents a future godly remnant in Israel. Okay, that, that's what the measuring of the temple is all about. Okay, and, and think about that. Okay, this is the greatness of our God. At, at this point in time, the whole world is against him and is against the Jewish people. Okay, okay, the Antichrist is on Operation Destroy Israel. And yet, despite this worldwide animosity and hatred... Okay, that they can do their absolute best. Yes, they'll have some success, but it's only if God permits it. Okay, if God protects a remnant, no one and nothing can harm them. Okay, and, that's, and that's amazing. Man can try and do their absolute best, but nothing will work. Okay, God has built a fence around them and they will be safe. My friend, this is the greatness of our God. Man can do their worst. But they are unable to bring God's plans and purposes to a halt. So this protected remnant that's signified by the measuring of the temple in this first scene. Okay, how, how does this connect to the two witnesses? Well, they will most likely come to Christ through the ministry of the two witnesses. And we're introduced to them in the second scene which is entitled Two Messengers. Okay, the introduction to these are two witnesses or, or the two martyrs seems okay, somewhat abrupt and disconnected to what has preceded. But as I've just suggested, these two will be crucial in establishing a believing Jewish remnant. Okay, so that their ministry will have a monumental impact. And they will be two of the last martyrs of history. And yet, these martyrs, they have not yet ministered. But it's interesting that they are already up there with some of the most famous martyrs in history. They have been subjects of much speculation and study. And there's a lot of intrigue and fascination surrounding these two. Now, what I would like to do, I want us to consider these two witnesses under four headings. Okay, their proclamation, their identification, their degradation, and their vindication. Okay, so number one, their proclamation. So in, in the future, during Earth's darkest days, God is going to raise up two exceptionally gifted and powerful preachers. In verse three, they're called Witnesses. Okay, this is the Greek word martus, where we get the English word martyr. Okay, since there have been so many witnesses for Christ who have paid with their lives, they have been referred to as martyrs. Now, it's interesting here that there's two witnesses. 
And it's likely that this has the Old Testament concept in mind that two witnesses are required in order to present a case and establish a conviction. Now, these two men, we're told, will witness by prophecy. Now, now when we see this word in the New Testament, we should not think of predicting the future like in Old Testament times, but rather the word very simply means preaching or, or proclaiming. So these two witnesses, they will come as powerful and gifted preachers. Okay, what will they preach? Well, they're going to preach the gospel. That they're going to warn the world that, that what they have already experienced, that's God's judgment. Okay, guys, you know, all of this bad stuff you've experienced, that's not by chance. That that's not just the weather cycles. Okay, this is the hand of the Lord. And understand there's much more coming. And in light of that, you should repent. We're told that their ministry will continue for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. And that seems to fit best in the second half of the tribulation period. So these two witnesses will proclaim to the world that, that all of these disasters that are unfolding, they are judgments of God. And they will warn that God's final outpouring of judgments, okay, that they're going to talk about what's to come, and surely that would also include hell. But at the same time, they will preach the gospel. They will call people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so this is their ministry. And I want you to notice in verse 3, we're told that they will be clothed in sackcloth. Okay, that's rough, heavy, coarse cloth worn in ancient times. And it was a symbol of mourning, of distress, of grief, and humility. And what this tells us is that these two witnesses, okay, they will be grieving the wicked state of the world and their impending doom. Okay, understand that, that God's judgment being unleashed, this wasn't something that thrilled them, but it grieved them. And they're motivated by care and, and compassion as they proclaimed God's word courageously. Okay, that, that they were not callous, that they're not unmoved, but rather they're deeply touched by the predicament of those around them. And as we think about that, there's a, there's a really important lesson here for you and I. Because we too are called to be witnesses for Christ. Our job is to share the gospel with those around us. And we ought not to be unmoved by the predicament of the lost. Okay, my friend, we ought to be distressed. We ought to be moved with grief as we think about these things. Okay, as we think about the plight of those around us, of those we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis... But I wonder if that exists in your heart. You know, I think often in the church, we're, we're far too unmoved by the condition of the lost. And, you know, may the Lord help us. May, may we comprehend clearly the plight of the lost around us and be filled with care, compassion and concern. Because this is where it all starts if we are to be effective in evangelism. And in fact, I would argue that this is why we don't evangelize. It's, it's not so much about strategy. It's not so much about a lack of knowledge. It's not so much about, you know, I don't have the right material. What it really boils down to is, is it's a lack of care. We don't care enough. 
Okay, and this is something for us to think about. Okay, something to ask the Lord to change within us. Okay, may we be more like these two witnesses. Now, as we continue to consider that proclamation, there's an interesting description in verse 4. They're referred to as two olive trees and two candlesticks. And this seems to be a reference to Zechariah chapter 4, where the same two things are mentioned. And here, primarily, or at that point in time, it spoke about Zerubbabel and Jeshua. But we need to keep something very important in mind when it comes to prophecy in the Old Testament. Some prophecies in the Old Testament have two fulfillments. Okay, there's a near fulfillment, and then there is a future, okay, far into the future. So in Zechariah chapter 4, okay, it spoke of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Okay, so, so that's the near fulfillment. They were lights for the Lord, and they were empowered by the oil from the olive trees, which speaks of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, you probably heard this verse, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. That's where that verse is from. So these two witnesses in Zechariah's time, they were influential in leading spiritual reform and the rebuilding of the temple. And just as they were raised up to be lampstands or witnesses for God and were empowered by the olive oil, which represents the Holy Spirit, so the two witnesses of Revelation 11 will execute such a role. Okay, they're going to lead this spiritual revival and they will minister in the power of God. And this becomes very clear in verses 5 and 6. Because God will give them the ability to perform amazing miracles. And God often worked this way, especially in the Old Testament and with the apostles. Okay, they would perform miracles primarily to verify their message. Okay, that the, the miracles were a stamp of authentication. The supernatural signs performed by these two witnesses here in Revelation 11, it will mark them as true prophets of God. But notice also that these miracles will be used as protection. Okay, at this point in time, the majority of the world will hate these witnesses. They will be out to harm them, anything to get rid of them, but the Lord will protect them. And they will have this ability to breathe out fire, I think somewhat like a dragon. And this will ensure that their ministry is not cut short. Okay, anyone that tries to harm them, okay, they will be consumed by fire. And this ensures that their ministry, it, it, it won't stop until God's prescribed time. No one at all can lay a hand upon them. No one can take their life until God permits it. Okay, these two witnesses, that they will have an amazing ministry. They will proclaim the gospel. They will ensure that the world knows that these cataclysmic events, they are coming from the Lord. And they will warn them about what else is in store. This is what they will proclaim. It's a final warning for mankind. Okay, and, and think about that. Okay? A final warning for mankind. Doesn't that reveal the heart of our God? Doesn't that reveal his grace? Doesn't that illustrate that he's willing that none should perish? 
Yes, he's the judge. Yes, he's unleashing this cataclysmic judgment during the tribulation. And yet he still ensures that man is without excuse. In fact, he gives mankind every opportunity to embrace the gospel. Okay, even at this time, when mankind has rejected so many opportunities, when man is so hardened against the Lord, and yet he still sends two witnesses, and they have a massive impact. Many will be saved, especially Jews. And my friend, this is amazing grace, that the Lord would continue to extend opportunity after opportunity, even in those dark days. My friend, that is our God. That's what he's like. And hence, he's worthy of our worship. So this is uh, their ministry. It's a ministry of proclamation. And this leads to the next question about these two witnesses. I think it's the obvious one. Who are they? Okay, this is... The second point, their identification. Now, as we think about this, it's important to not miss the obvious in the text. Can you see names in Revelation 11? There's none there. Okay, their identity is not given. And hence, we cannot be absolutely certain. I'm about to make a case for my opinion, but we cannot be 100% sure. And here's the thing. Ultimately, if God wanted us to know, if it was super critical, he would have told us. Okay, but there are some clues that may shed some light on their identity. Now, where we need to start is by declaring that this is two individuals. Okay, if you read some books, particularly if you're of the amillennial um, viewpoint, some will say this speaks of the church. Okay, or it speaks of some other corporate entity. But the details of the text make such thinking untenable. It's far too specific to be some kind of representative group. And we also need to understand that witnesses is always used in the New Testament to refer to people, okay, to persons. So the two witnesses must be actual people not movements or, or not some representative group. So with that in mind, okay, they are individuals. Who are they? Three common suggestions. Number one, Enoch and Elijah. Number two, Moses and Elijah. Or number three, prophets raised up following the rapture. They're not from the past, but exhibit a similar ministry to previous prophets okay they're the three most common suggestions you'll find Enoch and Elijah uh, has been a, a very common interpretation throughout church history perhaps you've heard that before and the principal reason for selecting these two is that they were both translated to heaven without seeing death okay so this interpretation is based on the understanding that all must die once but the thing is, okay, those who are raptured don't die. Okay, there are saints who are alive at the end of the tribulation. And there are examples like Lazarus in John chapter 12. Okay, he died twice. Okay, so, so this is not as strong of a case as one may initially assume. Especially with Enoch. 
Okay, because Enoch fails to match any criteria assigned to the two witnesses in the text. Okay, they perform certain miracles. You won't see any correlation with Enoch. Okay, so that's the first view. Others say it's Moses and Elijah. And there are four lines of argument that are typically presented. Okay, number one, the similarity of miracles performed. So the miracles performed by the two witnesses revealed in verses 5 and 6, they were performed by Moses and Elijah. And it's interesting they had the same intended purpose to induce repentance. Okay, Elijah called down fire from heaven and he pronounced a three and a half year drought on the land. Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood and announced the other plagues on Egypt. Okay, so there are some striking similarities. The second line of argument. Both the Old Testament and Jewish tradition expected Moses and Elijah to return in the future. Okay, Malachi 4.5 predicted the return of Elijah. And the Jews believed that God's promise to raise up a prophet like Moses, okay, Deuteronomy 18.15 and 18, necessitated his return. Third line of argument, Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ at the transfiguration. Okay, the transfiguration being a preview of the second coming. And then the fourth line of argument, both left the earth in unusual ways. Elijah never died, but he was transported to heaven in a fiery chariot. And God supernaturally buried Moses' body in a secret location. Okay, so they're, they're the four lines of evidence that will be given for this particular view. The thing is, with these views, okay, they're not irrefutable. Okay, there are some answers and there are some objections even to this evidence that's presented. But this case is a lot stronger than the first point of view. And then there's the third view. Okay, these witnesses are unknown men who God will raise up at that time. And their ministry will have striking similarities with Moses and Elijah. Okay, so they're the three views. Uh, I believe it's either the second or the third view. We cannot be 100% certain. Uh, if you pushed me into a corner and made me make a decision, I'm not going to tell No, I will tell you. I would, I would select Moses and Elijah if I had to, but I would not be dogmatic. Okay, so that is their identification. Thirdly, we see their degradation. Okay, these two witnesses, they, they're going to preach and proclaim for a set period of time. And only when they've finished the task, okay, I want you to notice this in verse 7, okay, the language here, it says, and when they shall have finished their testimony, only when it's done, not a moment before, but when it's completed, then these two witnesses will be silenced. But understand this only happens when God says they're finished. Okay, these two witnesses, they're untouchable until God says. And I think that principle still applies today. Okay, but, but at this time, when they have finished, the beast okay, is identified. This is the first of 36 references in the book of Revelation. Okay, the beast he is the Antichrist. One writer gives this definition of Antichrist. He says he is a Satan-possessed and demonically inspired person who will rule the world for a brief time as a counterfeit Christ, 
Okay, so that's the Antichrist, and he will make war against the witnesses, and he will eventually kill them. Okay, God will allow them to be slaughtered. But notice what happens. Okay, and, and this is a graphic illustration of okay, the, the twisted and wicked state of the world. Okay, they will be killed in Jerusalem, verse 8, and it's described as being like Sodom and Egypt. Okay, so, so this illustrates their moral condition. They're despicably wicked. And in case we don't believe that, it's illustrated in a horrendously graphic way in verses 9 and 10. Okay, the two bodies of the witnesses, they're left in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. Okay, they're not buried. And this is the ultimate insult in this culture. But not only this, we read of widespread rejoicing. Okay, people throughout the world, okay, meaning that likely that the media proclaims this everywhere, and most of the population is thrilled. Okay, but most of the population are over the moon that these witnesses are dead. Hey, finally, we no longer have to listen to them. I don't want to hear anything about them again. Okay, everyone was fed up with their preaching. Everyone was sick of all of this talk about God and judgments. Okay, and notice this, such is their joy that in verse 10, they send gifts to each other. Okay, it's like it's Christmas. Okay, and that they're celebrating the death of these witnesses. That, that's horrifying. And from my study, this is the only mention of rejoicing in Revelation. Men and women will hate God so much that only in the killing of his precious servants are they made happy. And that's a stunning indictment of human depravity. The wickedness, sinfulness and evil that resides in man. Okay, this is how the people will respond at the degradation of the two witnesses. But the story doesn't end there. We also read about the vindication of the witnesses. Okay, we've just spoken about the despicable depravity of man. That the fact that they hate God so much that they rejoice when his witnesses are slain. But, but as they are rejoicing, they will get struck by fear. Fear like they have never experienced before by what happens next. Can we read of an astonishing scene in verses 11 and 12? After three and a half days laying dead in the streets of Jerusalem, they will be resurrected. God will breathe into them the spirit of life. Now try and imagine what that would be like to see. They were dead. Everyone saw it. Everyone's poking fun at them. Everyone is laughing. It's publicized worldwide. Okay, there's widespread partying. Finally, the witnesses are gone. But then they're made alive. They're, they're resurrected. Imagine the panic. Imagine the fear. Surely this couldn't be true. What's happening? And notice the reaction of the people in verse 11. Great fear fell upon them which saw them. How could this be? What's happening? Imagine the scene. Okay, in this time, the, the witnesses, they, they don't start to preach again. 
that ship had sailed. But rather they're called up to heaven. Okay, verse 12, a great voice, likely the voice of either God the Father or, or God the Son, calls them home. That they ascend up to heaven in a cloud. And understand, this is a public rapture. This is not hidden. This is not secret. This is, this is an historical and visible moment for, for the eyes of fallen humanity to behold. No doubt this will be streamed throughout the world. What an astonishing moment. Okay, that these slaughtered martyrs are vindicated, that they're resurrected, they're transported to be with the Lord, and their enemies will see this transpire. And this moment when they're resurrected, when they're called up to be with the Lord, this is really a trigger moment. Okay, as the witnesses are taken to heaven, immediate judgment is unleashed on Jerusalem. Okay, so, so this is vindicating these two witnesses. The Lord will unleash a devastating earthquake. Results in thousands dying and a large part of the city being destroyed. And again, this is visual confirmation of the witnesses' ministry. Many of their enemies will be destroyed. But I want you to notice how verse 13 concludes. Very interesting. It says, And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay, the remnant gave glory to God. Okay, this could probably mean two things. It could mean that they acknowledge God's power and authority. Okay, and that's it. Or it could speak of more than that. Okay, it could be speaking of a group of Jews who were converted. Okay, and, I, and I favor the view that this speaks of a believing group in Jerusalem. Some will come to faith in Christ. And that seems to be supported by the phrase, gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay, elsewhere in scripture, giving glory to God is a mark of genuine salvation. So the ministry of these witnesses was effective. It resulted in a believing remnant. So that's the ministry of these two martyrs. They, they play a crucial role in ensuring that a believing remnant would exist, which is vital for the coming millennial kingdom. But their departure spelt bad news for those that remained behind and rejected the Lord. Things were already bad, but the witness's removal it is like a restrainer was released. And now things were about to get even worse. And this is seen in the third scene of this chapter, which I've called the trumpet mentioned. And for time's sake, I need to move over this really, really quickly. So in verse 14, we're told that the second woe has passed and the third woe is coming quickly. So in other words, the end is fastly approaching. And this is seen in the sounding of the seventh trumpet. In verse 15, it says, and the seventh angel sounded okay so remember we've been in an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets but now it sounds and what this signifies is the unleashing of the seven vile or bowl judgments yeah, and and this will culminate in the return of jesus christ and although the judgments associated with this that they're not described until revelation chapter 15 their unleashing is assured. And what we have here, what we have recorded is a heavenly response and an earthly response. Okay, the heavenly response is seen in verses 15 through 
to 17. And at this point in time, heaven is filled with worship. That they're rejoicing. Why? Because the end is near. That the seventh trumpet, okay, it, it announces that the consuming judgment on unbelievers, okay, that's about to come to an end. But, but it's also announcing the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, in the Old Testament, trumpets were frequently sounded at the coronation of a king. And we see this in verse 15. Okay, it's talking about the kingdom. Okay, Jesus will reign forever and ever. Okay, Christians, we have been praying, thy kingdom come. And at this point in time, it's about to happen. God will bring history to its climactic end. Jesus will rule and reign forever. Okay, and it's about to happen at this point in time. Satan, the ruler of this world, he will be overthrown. He will be overcome. Jesus will take his rightful place. My friend, that's the culmination of history. And this was a source of great joy and worship in heaven. But not everyone responded this way. There's also an earthly response in verse 18. The nations were angry. Okay, perhaps reference back to Psalm 2. This was their response to God and his righteous wrath. Okay, understand these people, they should have responded in repentance. But instead, it was hardened unbelief and anger that they refused to hearken to the Lord, which is a great tragedy. And what we see throughout this closing scene, okay, and this is significant, there's a lot here that I haven't addressed. But in the Greek text, there's a thing called a proleptic arrest that is used and you think what in the world is that well let me tell you okay a future event is so certain that it can be spoken of as if it has already taken place okay it's in the future but it's so certain that it's spoken of as though it's already taken place and this is used when speaking of God's coming judgments in verse 18 and the rule of Christ in verse 15 so understand that this is so certain it is so sure that it can be spoken of as though it has already happened so my friend understand this god will judge that may not sit well with you but it's a reality god will judge and jesus christ will rule and reign Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth. Jesus will sit on the throne. That the prayer that the church has prayed for centuries will be answered. His kingdom will come. Jesus will overthrow Satan. Jesus will right all wrongs. All knees will bow. All tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's all assured. This will happen. Okay, this is the message of this third scene in Revelation chapter 11 now in order to wrap all of this up okay this chapter it's all about the two witnesses that's the big idea and it has much to teach us about god i want to leave you with just two very brief thoughts okay about some things it teaches us about god much more could be said could probably you know list a dozen but let's just do two 
And I'd encourage you to meditate on these points and other things that this text reveals about God. Okay, number one, God wants mankind to be saved. Okay, it's the first thing we learn about God. God wants mankind to be saved. Even in the tribulation period, okay, what we see, God gives mankind opportunities to repent of their sin and embrace Christ. And that reveals the heart of God. Our God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that, that all should be saved. That's the desire of his hearts. And this is clear through the ministry of these two witnesses. And I don't know about you, but, but I'm so grateful that I serve a God who has provided a way for us to be saved. And it's so simple for us to possess it. And, and my God wants all to experience salvation. Okay, it's not just for some select few. It's not just for the elite club. It's available to all. My friend, that's the heart of God. He wants all to be saved. And the question for you is this. Have you come to God on his terms? Okay, that's the key. It's on his terms. What's his terms? Well, repenting of your sin. Turn from it. Believe that Jesus is God and that he died and rose again for your sin and call out to him to save you. Have you ever done that? That's the way to be saved. Okay, God wants you to be saved. That's his heart. My friend, will you accept the gift of salvation that is freely offered to you? And the second thing we learn about God and what we'll close with is that God has a plan. Okay, God has a plan. You know, I've had many conversations recently where people have mentioned their concern about where we are at as a country and where we're at as a world. And I get it. Okay, we, we seem to be heading away from God at a rapid rate of knots. And things look like they're about to get much worse. But my friend, be encouraged from this text. You know, there's a time coming when King Jesus will return. There's a time coming when his kingdom will be established and things will be very different. That, that's God's plan. God's not sitting out there right now thinking, what in the world am I going to do? That this world's a mess, they're rejecting me. I, I don't know what to do. No, 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 no. God's got a plan. Jesus will rule. Jesus will reign. Jesus will overthrow and defeat Satan. All of the wicked ideologies in our world, they will be overcome. King Jesus will defeat his enemies and he will rule and reign. Thy kingdom come will be fulfilled. My friend, right now, okay, things are dark, things depressive, and it looks like it's going to get worse. But remember... God has a plan, and that plan includes Jesus Christ returning to rule and reign. Jesus Christ will be crowned Lord of all, and he will reign forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. Thank you that you have uh, revealed uh, your plan to us. And uh, Lord, uh, from the study tonight, I, I do pray if there's anything that I've said is not true, Lord, may that be quickly forgotten. And uh, Lord, I, I do pray you would uh, you know, help us to be uh, meditating on this portion of Scripture, and uh, may it help uh, our love uh, for you to grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, Mark.